So if you have your Bible, you can open to the book of John chapter 9. And today I will finish John chapter 9. So John chapter 9, last week we walked through 1, verses 1, 2, and 3. And this week we'll complete that, complete that whole scene, complete that portion of the narrative. But before we get into that, by way of illustration, I want to show you a few images. And you're probably going to be familiar with most of these. I don't know about you, but I'm someone who likes optical illusions. And uh, these first three are pretty famous optical illusions. Most of you have probably seen these. If not then uh, I'm happy to be the one to show you these things. So when you look at this image, there's actually two images that are going on. Now for some people, they can only see one, and it might be one or the other. But for, I would say, most people, you can see two images. Does anyone recognize any one or both of the images just upon first appearance? You do. So you see an old woman, right? Does anyone not see the old lady? Ah, does anyone not see the young lady? So everybody sees both of these. That's good. So you see that's optical illusion number one. So you've got the old lady. If you don't see it, here's the big schnoz there with the big chin, right? There's the eye. Now, if you're not seeing the young lady, this is the jawline of the young lady. There's the nose. There's the ear. There's the eyelash and the nice, nice hat. So there you go. So there's another one after this one here. So there's several optical illusions here. There we go. Number two, there's one of two things happening here. Either you see a... If you see a spaceship, you might be one of those people that a psychiatrist holds up an ink blot that's clearly nothing, and you say, I see the return of Jesus, you know, I see the ghost of Christmas past, whatever. So right here, you see either a duck or you see a rabbit. To me, it looks much more like a duck than it does a rabbit, but you can see both here. So kind of a cool optical illusion. You can go to the next one there, Jake. This is one of my favorites. It's one of two things, either it's two faces or it's a vase, vase, whatever. And so these are, uh, these these first three are pretty, are pretty well known. We see them, we can see both things happening. For some it takes a little longer. But this final one you might find to be a bit problematic. Now I've looked at this one for about 15 straight minutes this morning and I cannot see it. Supposedly there are two dresses that, is, that are in this image. Now, if you flip it upside down, which I don't have, we don't have a way to orient it that way, but if you flip it upside down, you can actually see two faces. But all the research I've done shows that these are actually two dresses. But I have looked at this and looked at this and looked at this, and I just don't see the dresses yet. But supposedly, it's two dresses. I even tried to find an image where someone actually highlighted the dresses, and I can't find it. So if you ever see this image and you can find the two dresses, please let me know, because I cannot. Now, maybe it's all a hoax and jokes on me, jokes on you, that there's actually nothing there to be seen, but this is all the websites I've been to say these are two dresses, and this is listed as a more complex or a more difficult optical optical illusion to see. So I wanted to show these. You can take those down, Jake. I wanted to show these by way of introduction because this is kind of the way that I've experienced specifically John chapter 9, but I experienced the Bible a lot this way. I approach these optical illusions, and sometimes I don't see it at first, and I just keep looking, I keep looking, and then things start to surface. Or maybe I approach this text, or I approach an optical illusion, and I can see something from the outset, but it takes a while to see what else is there. I can see the faces, but it takes me a while to see the hourglass. I can see the old woman, but it takes me a while to see the young lady in the picture. And I think this is our approach to the scriptures a lot of times. We visit the scriptures and we read them, we reread them, the same stories, the same narratives, the same pericopes, the same parables, all of these things we read over and over and over again. And sometimes we arrive at this point where we're seeing something more clearly or we're seeing something for the first time despite the fact that we've read it hundreds of times before. I personally think that just comes with knowledge, sanctification, the work of the Holy Spirit in our life. You know, because I come to chapter 9 and there's things in here that I've never seen before as I meditate on it. And I've preached through most of John before, but I never saw some of these things in John chapter 9. Hopefully that's the sanctifying work of God, the work of the Holy Spirit in my life. Hopefully that comes with better discipline and studying and, uh, and maturity. And so that's what I want to do today. I want to walk you through this narrative and go ahead and give you the initial image. If you want to use a painting on a canvas illustration, I want to give you the full image that's on the canvas, or I want to give you the full optical illusion to where maybe you can see the hourglass. But I want us to walk through so that you can start seeing the faces as well because there's so much that's going on in here. And let me just say this as an encouragement to you. 
for those of you that are trekking with us and reading through the Bible in a year, I mean, it's getting real now, right? You're, you're reading some long chapters. You're, ah, this is a busy day, and maybe it's hard to stay disciplined in that way. Let me encourage you to keep on keeping on, because if you will just saturate yourself, if you will commit yourself to it, whether you get behind, whether you get way ahead, and just trust that the Lord's going to bring things to surface, whether you're reading about Mephibosheth and crazy names that you can't pronounce, or if you're reading some of the most obvious things you've ever seen, and let the Lord... Let the Lord connect with you in a new way as you read through those things. So here's my objective for today with regards to John chapter 9. I want to see the deeper, richer truths that are hidden within the story of a blind man. I want to see the deeper, richer truths, or I want us to see the deeper, richer truths that are hidden within the story of a blind man. Because if we take a cursory reading, we see this great miracle that takes place. We walk through this text And we see that Jesus does this wonderful, miraculous work. And we walk away saying, see, John's gospel is an apologetic for the deity of Christ. See, Jesus proves it again in John chapter 9. He heals this man who had been blind from birth, which this reminds me, this is very important in case I forget to mention it later. This is not a restorative work that Jesus does. This is an initial work that Jesus does. This wasn't a man who lost his sight due to a head injury or an eye injury or something like that. This is a man who was born with this infirmity so that the works of God might be displayed in him. But it's important to understand when we get to the latter part of this text by way of as we explain things is that this guy is, uh, is, is, is given sight. He's not restored. His sight is not restored, but his sight is given. Jake, you can pull volume down just a little bit. So what, we want, what I want to do first, and I don't always approach a text like this or, or, or communicate a text like this, is I want to kind of walk through John chapter 9 to give you the image, to give you the snapshot, to give you the narrative, to give you the full scope of things that are happening. Some of it I'll read, some of it I'll paraphrase. But just by way of reminder, what is happening in this text? If you remember from last week, we have Jesus and his disciples There's a lot of players in this story. There are Pharisees, there are neighbors, there's a mom and dad, there's a lot of things that are happening that maybe you haven't seen yet because I didn't talk through those parts, but there's a lot of players in the book of John in in chapter 9. And it starts with this man who was blind from birth. Blind from birth. Okay, so he's right now a focal point, even though the story is ultimately not about this blind man, but he's a focal point for a second. And then the disciples ask this question based on rabbinic teaching from the first century. Who has sinned, this man's parents, or was it this man who sinned in the womb? Because there were rabbinic schools that taught both. I told you that last week. Jesus responds. He says, no, this is neither one has sinned. The reason that this man is blind is so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Okay, so a little bit of a theology lesson for these disciples, which was helpful and helpful for us. So from that point, it carries on, and Jesus has an exchange with this man. This, Jesus comes to this man. This man is of age. This man's probably 20, 23, somewhere around in there. He comes to this man. He has this exchange, and he basically says, you know what? Or he doesn't say, but he's going to heal the guy. But he does so in this weird, unorthodox way. He comes to this guy. He spits in the ground. He spits on the mud. He takes the mud mixed with his saliva, and then he rubs the mud in the guy's eyes. So he takes that which would normally blind us normally cause us not to see and he puts it in this guy's eye and then he says I want you to go to the pool of Siloam so he gives them these directives I want you to go over there I want you to go to the pool of Siloam I want you to go to this public pool and I want you to immerse yourself or not immerse yourself but I want you to get the water and I want you to rinse the mud away from your eyes this is what he says he doesn't say what's going to happen he doesn't say what's going to follow he just says I want you to do this so the guy does it. He goes to the pool. And by the way, the pool of Siloam means scent, which is going to be interesting later on. So he goes and he dips his hands. He brings them up. He washes the mud from his eyes. And the scripture says that he comes back to Jesus seeing. He can see. Now you can just really imagine the experience that this guy has, has, has just encountered. I mean, it doesn't say in the text all the emotions. It doesn't say in the text, you know, how he responded at that moment when all of a sudden the mud was rinsed out of his eyes and then he opens his eyes and sees things for the first time in his life. I can imagine it's a pretty emotional experience. Maybe, you could, maybe we can identify it in some way whenever we see these commercials. Right, these commercials where, uh, like commercials that get me are when veterans are reunited to 
wives or husbands and children. You know, I'm crying a bit then. You know, there's other emotional commercials, like commercials where you have colorblind people who are then given these crazy magic glasses. And you can't have these commercials with having, without having the right music behind it. You know what I'm saying? It's this really specific music that takes place. And you're watching, and if you're just watching it without the music, you're like, oh, that's sweet. He can see. But then they play this stuff that's like guaranteed to provoke some serious crocodile tears because like, he can't see. You know, you're upset about this. And then everybody's gathered around him. There's this big party, and they bring out this box. And he opens the box. All he knows is some gray slab of box, right? He can't see, right? So he's looking, and he's like, oh, this is great. Oh, some sunglasses. No, they're not just sunglasses. They're something else. Put them on. Son, daughter, grandpa, grandma. I've seen all of them, and I've cried through all of them. Every one of them. Why do you do this to me? So he puts on the glasses, and all of a sudden, he can see things. And you have to understand, it's not just that he sees, and they're sobbing, they're weeping, and you're like, why would they be crying? I mean, they can see. This is, this is great. I mean, there's so much joy. Why? Because they are experiencing life in a new way. They're processing information differently. An apple's not just an apple. They can feel an apple and they smell an apple, so they knew what an apple was. But they had no idea the beauty of an apple. This red, delicious apple, they didn't have this connection in their mind that, man, this, this thing, what this looks like, what this looks like, this is this, this, is this beautiful thing. They're processing sounds with sight. Mama, daddy, friends, neighbors. This man spent years begging in the street. And he probably saw people constantly coming into this, or, or heard people constantly coming into the synagogue. And he's begging them. He's begging them. And now he's matching faces with voices. So it's this experience that's revolutionary. And so I can imagine this blind man who goes, and he's starting to see things. He's starting to process things. Just like the person who was colorblind can now see these beautiful colors that God has, has allowed us to see. And now this guy who was blind but now can see, he's seeing things that he would never have experienced. And this caused quite a stir in the community, right? Because the next thing that happens is the neighbors come to this guy. This guy who can now see the neighbors come to him and they start questioning things. What, what, what's, who, what has happened to you? Who's done this to you? He says, this, this, this man, Jesus, it says the neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? And some said, well, it's not him. It's just a man that looks like the man that actually is blind and the man that actually was begging. This is just kind of a doppelganger. This is somebody that looks like him. And he says, I am the man. So they said to him, then how were your eyes open? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and I washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. He wouldn't know Jesus if he saw him. He didn't know who Jesus was. He heard a voice and he knew that there was a man that told him to go and wash himself in the pool of Siloam. Go wash himself in the scent pool. So the neighbors are interacting with him, and this isn't enough. The neighbors say, well, we've got to go to the authorities. So they go to the Pharisees. These are the religious authorities, and they want to know what's going on. Can someone give us some kind of explanation to all of these things? So the Pharisees enter the, into the equation, and the Pharisees take major issue with this. What has happened? We don't believe you. And there's indication in the text for why they didn't believe him. And even at the point where they're like, okay, maybe this could be true. If this is possibly true, we dare not give credit to Jesus Give glory to God, they say later. And then, if it is Jesus, how dare he heal on the Sabbath? So they're taking this great miracle, and they're putting a negative spin on it. You know, forget the fact that Jesus has restored this man's sight. By the way, healings of any type are all throughout the Bible, but the one that is predominating throughout all of the Bible, especially the New Testament, is the healing of sight. And there's a significant correlation between, between that and who we are apart from Christ, which we'll see in just a minute. So the Pharisees are having this discussion with this man who can now see, and they're taking issue with his claim. And it says that they had made a statement that anybody who confesses Jesus would be cast out of the synagogue. So what do they do? They say, you know what, okay, we've asked this man, we've heard his story, so now we're going to go to the mom and dad and kind of get their story of this whole thing. They didn't believe it. They said he probably just was never blind at all. 
So let's go talk to the source. Let's go talk to his parents. Maybe they're in their right mind, and maybe they'll give us some kind of answer to our question. So they ask mom and dad, and mom and dad respond by saying, listen, he was sure enough blind, he could not see. From birth, he's never been able to see. And all we know is that now he can, but you need to ask him. You need to ask him. He is of age. He can give an account of what happened to him. Maybe they were a little afraid. Maybe they had no clue. Maybe they couldn't substantiate whether or not Jesus had done this thing. Maybe they didn't see that. I don't know. The scripture doesn't tell us. But this is what they did do is they deflected things back onto the boy. Ask him or to the man. Ask him. He's the one that can give you an account. He's the one that will attest for what happened. So the Pharisees do just that for the second time. It wasn't the first account that gave them enough information. They had to go back to him again and say, listen, tell us the story again. I mean, I don't think this is uncommon. This happens with interviews from, uh, from, 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 the, from, from the authorities like the police and all of these stuff when they're doing investigations. They might come to someone, whether a suspect or whether a witness, and they may ask for the story a number of times. So these Pharisees say, all right, we want to hear the story again. And it's not necessarily because they wanted to get all the details right, but they just couldn't accept that Jesus had done this and that Jesus is who he says he is. They couldn't accept that. So they say, listen, young man, give glory to God. Give glory to God. Now, you and I hear that, and we think, well, that's good. Yeah, I, I would approve of that answer. I would affirm that answer. If something happened in your life, I'd say, give glory to God. Or if something happened in my life, and you say, Alan, give glory to God. Absolutely, that's right, give glory to God. But there's a big difference in what they meant and what we would mean today. Because when they say give glory to God, give glory to God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who is not, who is not a part of a triune Godhead who is not the first of the three, not the first as far as his, uh, his power or his quality, but the first in the listing, the God, uh, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the first person of the triune Godhead, Jesus being the second person of the triune Godhead, followed by the Holy Spirit. So they are wanting him to say, you know what, give glory to God and reject this notion that it was actually Jesus. Now, this is how the blind man responded. He said, listen, <laughs> they called Jesus a sinner because he healed on the Sabbath. And he said, whether this guy's a sinner, I don't know. I don't know. But this is what I know. I was blind, but now I see. That's what I know. This guy was dealing strictly in reality. Look, I don't know how it happened. I don't know who he is. This is what I know. After decades, most likely, of blindness, I see. I experience I, I match voices with faces. I match images with tastes. You know, I, I can see now. This is what I know. And then it gets a little bit dicey in their conversation. After they came to him a second time, this conversation goes on, and they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? This is verse 27. He answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are the disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, This is amazing. This is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing, they answered him. You were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. And then Jesus comes to this blind man. And Jesus begins to speak to this blind man. And he says to him, do you believe and the blind man says, show me the one to whom, I'm, believe, to whom I'm supposed to believe in. And Jesus said, the one who is speaking to you is the one that you're to believe in. Specifically, he said, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered, who is he, sir, that I might believe in him? And Jesus said, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. And Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world, that those who do not, see my, do, do, not, do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we so blind? 
And Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you see, now, now that you say we see, your guilt remains. So that's a cursory reading, a cursory telling of this whole narrative in John chapter 9 of this man who was born blind and now he can see. So there's start to finish before we get into next week's The Good Shepherd stuff in uh, uh, John chapter 10. But there's a few things that I think need to be pulled out of this text. The most obvious thing is that Jesus has healed this man. And we walk away, that's great. We walk away with the fact that Jesus is revealing himself. God is revealing his power. God is displaying himself through these works of healing. We walk away correct. We walk away with great information, information that we can build on, and that's fantastic. But it goes much further than that. Last week we said that this man was set aside as a vessel for God for the display of God's power, for the display of God's might, for the display of God's sovereignty, for all of these things. We talked about that. Just like Pharaoh is prepared as a vessel of wrath, just like you and I are prepared as a vessel for whatever God's going to do in and through our life. Everyone has an appointed time, and everyone has an appointed season. Everyone has a purpose that God is bringing them through to bring about his good ends, just like this man who was born blind that Jesus healed. We walk away with the healing power of God through this man, and we're great. And you say, why did he heal him again? That his works might be displayed. But that's still not the root. It doesn't just stop there. We see that this man was healed, that God's works might be displayed. But why does God want to display his works? So that he might be glorified. That's where it lands That's the root issue of all things, that God might be glorified in our lives. That's the root behind Pharaoh being a vessel of wrath prepared for destruction, that God might be glorified. That's the root behind Abraham being rescued from paganism to be an everyman's man, a broken man, a former pagan brought to life by Yahweh God and then used mightily. Why? So that God might be glorified. So we arrive at this idea of God's God-centeredness. That no one is more for God than God himself. No one is more for God than God himself. As a matter of fact, God's love for you, God's saving you, his sanctifying you, is the byproduct of God's God-centeredness. If God did not have affections first and foremost for himself, he would most certainly not have affections for you. But we're often taught otherwise. We're often taught one dimension of these things. We're often taught that God loves you, that you are the crown of his creation, that he has, that he has set his affections upon you. And I would say to that, absolutely, absolutely. But that's not the rest of the story. It's not the rest of the story. It's completely one-dimensional. Why does he love me? Why does he set his affections upon me? Because he loves his glory. And what is more glorious than God setting his affections upon a humanity that has completely rebelled against him and become hostile towards him? God has made the cosmos. He's made galaxies that we will never see. He's made, you know, he's made things that, 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 that we will never even know about that are way beyond our reach. And you say, well, why can't we see them? Because they're not for you, because they're for him and for his glory. The heavens do what? They declare the glory of God. They don't declare the glory of man. They declare the glory of God. Why? Because they were made for him. But the heavens didn't rebel against him. The animals in the world didn't rebel against God, did they? The animals in the world don't need redemption. The cosmos doesn't need redemption. Man needs redemption. And for God to set his affections upon you and me, what could be a greater display of God's God-centeredness? He says, I want the glory for this. This is not an uncommon theme in the scriptures. Listen to this, Philippians 2, 9 through 11. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. To the glory of whom? God the Father. 
not the glory of man, but the glory of God the Father. Psalm 19.21, um, so 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. Exodus 25, which we mentioned last week, you shall not bow down to those idols he tells you not to make. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Jealous for what? Glory. Glory. He says, I will not share my glory with another because he's jealous for his glory. He doesn't want you to rob him of his glory. He doesn't want you to become puffed up and rob him of his glory. He wants you to be like Christ and walk in great humility and great allegiance in a life that honors, honors God. Isaiah 42, 8, he says, I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. The scriptures labor to show us the glory of God in order that we might become a God-centered people. God's God-centeredness is for the purpose of us becoming God-centered. It's logical, it's fair, it's right. And most of the time we don't have an issue with this. We worship God, we meet here. The idea is we worship we give praise to God. No one in here would disagree with that. I can say, hey, we are here to praise God. Your life is for the glory of God. And you would say, amen, I believe that. I agree with that. But when God's on the other side, he says, yes, I want that glory. We balk at this. Sometimes, some of us, maybe not anybody in this room, but I've seen a lot of furled eyebrows and ruffled feathers when you talk about God's God-centeredness. How could, be, how could God be an egomaniac? see, the problem is we try to apply human rules, not just human, but broken human rules. We try to apply creaturely rules to a creator. And it doesn't work that way. Does God's God-centeredness give you pause? We're taught that God is for you. He loves you. I agree with that. We have songs that say, crucified, laid behind the stone. He lived to die, rejected and alone. Like a rose trampled on the ground, he thought of me above all. I would submit to you that what Jesus thought of was the glory of God, allegiance, obedience, and honor to the Father. Was it for our sake? Yes, but the root is for His glory, for His glory. If our understanding of the extent of God's love only goes as far as His love for us, we become one-dimensional because God's love for us is the byproduct of His love for Himself and for His glory but this is problematic for some. The reason we balk at God's God-centeredness is because we know that pride, we know that arrogance, we know that egocentrism is bad, right? I mean, how many of you have friends that they seem to always boast in themselves? It's like, okay, just hush for a while. They wanna, they wanna always give you their resume. I've done this, I've achieved this, I've done these things. It's a difference when somebody else boasts in you you know, like it's not uncommon for my wife to walk down the street and say my husband's the most handsome man in any room. I get that. That's fair. That's fine. You know, smartest, all that stuff. That's great. I would never say that of myself. That's man-centered, okay? <laughs> Have to throw in some relief because it's getting heavy, all right? Now back down to the trenches. We know that pride, arrogance, egocentrism, these things are bad. That's ingrained in us. We know that. We're guilty of it sometimes, but we know it. We're like, that's bad. Ugh, it rubs me raw. Stop giving me your resume verbally. Stop boasting in yourself. You know, take a bite of humility and see how that sits in your stomach. You know, and this is something I need to say to myself a lot. But we know these things are bad, but we glorify ourselves all the time. We have a hall of fame. The, the, the Greeks, an entire civilization, did what? They lived to leave a name for themselves. That's what they did. It's self-glorification. If everything in, in existence exists for the glory of God, then that must necessarily mean that God exists for the glory of God. If God doesn't glorify himself, we've got a problem. Let me explain this. In a nutshell, God becomes an idolater, and here's why. Here's why. When we glorify ourselves, we consider it bad because it is idolatry, because we are not the greatest and best beings in the world or in existence. So it's bad when we boast in that sense in and of ourselves. 
Because why? Because we know there is a greatest and best being in existence, and he is God. If God elevates anything that's not himself in existence, then God erects these idols. If for us, idolatry is building up or erecting anything that's not God or anything above God, if that's idolatry, is it not the same for God? Is it not the same that he would put anything above himself? Everything that happens, everything that transpires, providentially, sovereignly, all these things happen for the glory of God. Pharaoh being a vessel of wrath prepared for destruction was for the glory of God. It doesn't just apply to the good things that happened. It applies to all things that God is working and doing for his own glory. He doesn't share his glory with another. Do you think he's going to leave his glory to chance? Do you think that he's going to say, I'm really hoping that Clayton and Tracy will glorify me with their lives. I'm going to keep my fingers crossed and hope. No, you don't do that if you are the sovereign of the universe. You decree, you ensure that their lives will be unto your glory. Now that might manifest in different ways. Because if God is gracious, merciful, loving, patient, peaceful, and all these things, it's manifested in those ways. But if God is also just, oftentimes resulting in discipline, wrath, punishment. Doesn't that glorify God as well? Doesn't eternal separation from God ultimately glorify God? Because it appeases His wrath. When Jesus had God's wrath poured out on Him, it pleased the Father to crush the Son. You can't read that without thinking glory to God. God has to glorify himself. We cannot glorify ourselves, but God must glorify himself. This is the creature-creator relationship dynamic. We cannot project onto God the rules that apply to us because we are the creatures. Clay doesn't say to the potter, why have you formed me this way? It doesn't get the chance. It's strange because we are terribly inconsistent at times. We worship God through our behavior, prayer, singing, obedience, etc. We honor those who have died for God's glory. But we raise issue with God receiving the very thing that we are called to express. God's God-centeredness is good because it results in your salvation. One theologian said this, If you make much of God because he makes much of you, then you're making much of you. And if you treasure treasure God because he treasures you, then you're not treasuring God for how glorious he is himself. I think that's worth making mental note of for the future when we consider our motivation behind why we treasure Christ. First, it's because of who he is. Now he's glorious because of what he does. Don't get me wrong. But what he does is a byproduct of who he is. If everything goes wrong in your life, you have still every reason and an eternity worth of opportunity to say you are still glorious, you are still good. And that's truth. So in this text, I don't just see a man that was blind and then given sight to display the works of God. That's absolutely true. But when we look at this optical illusion and we try to see what else is there, we see that it's also that God might be made glorious. But there's more to see in this text. We start to get to see the deadness of the man's heart. I won't labor this point too much because we've talked about this before in previous passages with John. But you start to see this exchange between the Pharisees and this man. And they get mad. They revile him because he's saying, Jesus did this. This I know. I was blind, but now I see. I can't really give credit anywhere else. I just know that this is what happened. And so they revile him because he says, do you want to be his disciples too? You've taken such a keen interest in this. But the Pharisees refused to believe who Jesus was claiming to be and that these events happened initially as this man said that they happened. They rejected the miraculous first by rejecting the reality of the man's blindness. And this is what a dead heart will lead us to do, by the way. Not lead us to do if we're in Christ, but lead a person to do. There are two things I want you to see about a dead heart. First, a dead heart creates its own reality 
A dead heart creates its own reality. These Pharisees are a quintessential example of dead-heartedness. They'd seen miracle after miracle. They had seen the effect of the teachings of Christ, and somehow they just can't connect with it. Somehow they just can't accept these things. They've seen wondrous miracles. They've heard wondrous teachings, and yet, no, this is, this is impossible. Even at the moment that they're willing to say, okay, maybe he did this, but he did it on the Sabbath. It just really shows the true deadness of a heart. A dead heart creates its own reality. The Pharisees tried to create their own reality by saying that this man was never blind, which is why they're asking the parents, what's going on here? Maybe this man was never, ever, ever blind. And there are plenty of examples today of how we look at a world and we see that the deadness of a heart creates its own reality. There are four major currents that are moving our culture along today. One is the social justice movement. There's good and bad to that. Another is abortion. There's gay marriage. There's the whole sexual revolution. These are four major heavy hitters that are affecting all kinds of things, even in evangelicalism today. The sexual revolution, that gender is binary, that gender is fluid, that you can change or that you have no gender at all. You know what that is? That is creating your own reality. It's creating your own reality. When the reality says that God created them male and female. Gay marriage created reality says that marriage is defined by inclination and desire rather than covenantal union between a man and a woman. You see there's a created reality and then there's actual reality there. And that's what a dead heart does. It says, I'm going to take truth and I'm going to twist it. Is that not what Satan did from the very beginning? Does it not make sense that it would follow suit with Satan at the helm in that regard? Abortion. A created reality says that all life is, um, reality says that all life is precious and has worth and value because God created it. But the created false reality of a dead heart says that life before birth has no intrinsic value or worth. It's a created reality, and that's what the dead heart does. Romans 1 has a specific way of speaking towards this kind of behavior or reality, recreation. It's called suppression of truth. And Paul deals with these people in Romans and he says, this is what you've done. You've suppressed the truth of God and you've elevated creature over creator. And that's an abomination to God. So a dead heart creates its own reality. Secondly, a dead heart roots itself in the natural. The Pharisees demanded that Jesus could be responsible, so they said, give God the glory that Jesus couldn't be responsible. They would be fine today, that would be fine today, but as we understand God now in light of the scriptures, this is not the God that the Pharisees are speaking of in the first century. When the man was insistent that it was Jesus, they could only focus on his breaking the Sabbath. The dead heart roots itself in the natural. It cannot accept the supernatural. The scripture says these things are spiritually discerned. If they don't have the spirit, it only makes sense they would root themselves in the natural. Nicodemus did it. Nicodemus did it in John chapter 3. How is the man going to be born again? The woman at the well did it. Where's this living water? Where's this well? I want to go to that well. She's thinking naturally, physically. She's missing the point at first that Jesus is trying to make. Atheism rejects the logical, albeit supernatural, explanation for the existence of all things, but it embraces the illogical, the untenable, the nonsensical theories such as Big Bang and evolution. Why? It suppresses truth. It's rooted in the natural, and it can't accept the supernatural. It will embrace things that are absolutely wild and harebrained because at least it's not supernatural. But what do you call getting something out of nothing? So that's the deadness of a man's heart. Something else interesting in this text is Jesus is showing his deity, and this will just take a minute. It's easy, it's brief. But notice something. The Pharisees have this exchange. And finally what it landed at, where it landed was that they would say, hey, you're out. You're confessing Jesus in this way. I don't think at that moment he was a believer. He said, who is this guy? I don't know who he is, but I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm ready. I want to believe whatever it is. Show me. This man healed me. Take control. But he just said, hey, it's Jesus who did this to me. I know that. So they cast him out. And then Jesus finds him. Do you believe in the Son of Man? Show me. 
where is he? I'm, I'm on. I'm, I'm all in, right? The one who's speaking to you. He says, Lord, I believe. And he did what? He worshiped. He worshiped Jesus. And you say, he worshiped Jesus. Is that, is that airtight? Does that show me that, 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 that Christ is, is deity? I would say in a sense, yes. But most of all, the way we know that Christ is promoting his own deity here is the way that he responded to the man's worship. And his response was to allow it to take place. If anybody, if anybody knew the dangers in idolatry, it's Jesus Christ. If anybody knew the worship of anything or anyone other than God is an idolater, it's Jesus. He knew this. But what does he do? Rather than saying like so many others did in the scriptures, stop, we're giving glory to the Lord, it's not me. Paul, Barnabas, the city of Lystra, Acts chapter 14, Zeus and Hermes have come and they began to throw a ticker tape parade. No, 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 we give glory to God. Jesus doesn't do that, does he? He doesn't stop him and say, hold on, hold on, wrong guy, I'm just a vessel. He receives the worship, he inhabits the praise of this person. Don't miss this. You will talk to a Jehovah's Witness and you will bring this up and they will say to you, no, 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 he was just showing respect. That's it. He was just showing respect. That's not what that word means. A, in context, you can't just arrive at respect. And B, you cannot study the Greek language and look at that word, look at the endings and say, oh, it's just respect because it's a different form of the word. But the form that is used is worship, a religious offering of praise. He worshiped that. He worshiped Jesus, and Jesus didn't stop him. And for those that would reject the deity of Christ, have to deal with that reality, is that Jesus accepted the praises. So you're left with two explanations. Either Jesus is an idolater himself, because he allows himself to be praised, to be worshiped, to be lifted in a position above God, or Jesus is God himself, or Jesus is fully divine. And I think the text argues that Jesus is fully divine. There's one more thing to see in this text. And that's this, that the blind man is every man. The blind man is every man. When I first read this, I'm perusing through it and I'm seeing that, okay, this miracle has happened. I can see Jesus showing, you know, Jesus showing power and God's displaying his might through Christ. And then these great things are happening. Man, you can talk for days about the mercy and the power of God. But then it goes so much further here because this man's story, although it is literal, although it is historical, it also serves as a sort of parable for you and for me because this blind man is every man. Listen to the language that is used as we look at the first part of this text. This man was born blind. We understand that people are blind are in darkness. They're in darkness they cannot see. And then you have someone that's sent to him. Interestingly, you have this specific point in time that these things are happening when Jesus is at this specific point in time in his earthly ministry. Why wasn't this man restored to his sight or, or given sight when he was 12 years old, when he was three years old? No, God sovereignly superintends that, okay, in Jesus' ministry, this is when these moments will take place. For the glory of God, and so that people can see that this blind man is representative of every man, born in darkness, lostness, separated, begging without hope, and broken. That's the deeper, richer realities that are lying within this text. And Jesus says something that's interesting. He says, God would display his might, his power through the healing of this man. But we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. Why does Jesus say these things? We have to figure out what the works of God are. We have to understand. Is he talking about mercy ministries? Feeding the homeless, digging a well over in the Sudan, providing food. Is he talking about these things? No, that's not what he's talking about. He's not commissioning the disciples to go and heal everyone of their blindness. He's not commissioning them to fashion crutches for those who are crippled, for those who are lame. That's not what he's doing at all. 
The heart behind what he's saying is, we must do the works that God sent me, for we only have the light for a season, and then darkness comes. What is darkness representative of? Death. Previously, Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. We understand in that text, Jesus is saying, I'm the way to salvation. You will have the light for a season, but there will come a time where it is too late. Just a few chapters ago, we discussed that. Jesus brings it back into the story. You only have a little bit of time. So what he's commissioning them when he's saying we must do the works, he's not saying do mercy ministries, which those are fine, those are good, but he's saying we need to bring the gospel to people. We need them to be changed from the inside out rather than just on the outside. The blind man is every man, and he's just a representation of the reality of us all. This man being born blind was to display the works of God. However, the deeper, richer purpose of this text is to show that the crown and the epitome of God's works in this glorious display, that being the, that being the salvation of the spiritually bankrupt and the blind. The blind man's sight being given, not restored, was representative of the power of the gospel and the gospel work that must be done while there is still light. Just as this man's sight was revolutionized, and it revolutionized the way he sees life. Our salvation gives sight when we were otherwise spiritually blind. We now experience Jesus. We can seek and savor Jesus. Why? Because we've been given sight. We've been made to see. And thus we can seek and savor Christ. You may have even said to yourself, I just want God to perform a miracle in my life. And I want to make this point clear as we close. I want God to do a work in my life. I want God to show me great and mighty things. I want him to increase my faith through a miracle. I want to see this person's cancer healed so that you can't blame it on any medicine or anything. It has to be a complete wonder, a complete mystery that can only be chalked up as miraculous. We want to see those things. And if you're like me, you want to see those things in your own life because you want your faith to be boosted. You want to have a robust faith and a strong pursuit of Christ. And you think, man, if he'll just do this in my life, if he'll just do this in my life, listen to me. The greatest display of God's glory is your life. The miracle has happened. You need nothing else to secure strength and faith in your life because he's done it. Your life is a storyboard that displays the glory of God because everything in and of yourself would take you away from God, but the scripture says he keeps us and you are the display of his glory, of his grace, of his mercy, of his peace. You are the display of that. So while I think it's fine to say, God, I want you to heal this. God, I want you to do this. God, I want you to answer this problem for me. God, I need this job. Those things are great. We're trusting God. We're saying, yes, you are in control. That's wonderful and awesome and right. But don't ever, ever, ever think that until those things happen, that God's not really displaying his glory in your life because that's false. Because you were unlovable, you were broken, you were hostile, and you were dead. And the active agent comes in. And metaphorically, spiritually, he puts mud in your eyes. And he gives you a directive. He says, be washed and cleansed. Does it, does it come as any surprise that the pool of Siloam is called Sent, and Jesus in Hebrews 3.1 is called the Sent One. Does it come as any surprise that we read in Ephesians chapter 5 that, that Christ is washing his bride with the water of the word, that she might be ready to be presented to him on that day? Should it come as a surprise to any of us that we see a text like this that involves the Sent One, the active agent coming in an unorthodox fashion, rubbing mud in the eyes of a man who could never see, and the man follows a directive, and he can now see, and his life is changed. Don't we have directives as well? Repent and believe. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised from the dead. You will be saved with a mouth confession is made into salvation and with a heart, uh, with, with a heart profession is made into salvation. When, well, with a, sorry. With a heart a person believes, sorry, with a mouth confession is made into salvation. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Are those not directives? So you can see how this man, this blind man, you can see how his story serves as sort of a parable for us.
And the blind man responds to Jesus by worshiping him. I think this pretty much sums up how our lives should be marked as followers of Christ. Worship. What is your response daily to the glorious, salvific power and work of the gospel through Christ for the glory of God in your life? It should be worship every day. Do I mean singing songs as you're at work, singing songs as you're driving? No, I don't mean that. I mean your life, Romans type stuff. This is your life, a display of worship, of trust, of obedience, of service, your living, active display of worship. This story is not about a blind man, but about the infinite worth and the glory of God the Father displaying his works through God the Son so that we might behold his wonders and spend a life making much of him. Let me close with this scripture. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Translation, do it all for the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, I simply just want to pray the text that I just read. And I ask that, first of all, working from back to front, Lord, that you would give us thankful hearts that we might show our thanksgiving and our gratitude to you for all the works that you've done. Lord, that you might unify our hearts as Christians, as believers, as the body of Christ with thankful hearts, Lord, that we are unified through the Holy Spirit who is our peace, or Jesus is our peace, and we've been given peace, we've been given unity, we've been given understanding. Lord, that we're unified in that way despite the things that separate us and make us different. Lord, we are alike and we are unified in the thing that matters, and that's the gospel. So, Lord, I pray that in love we find perfect harmony with one another and all the trappings that come with that. Father, I pray that as we belong to you, as we are your chosen ones, Lord, that you consider us holy and beloved, Lord, that we might have compassionate hearts, Lord, as your scripture says, that we might express kindness and humility and meekness and patience, Lord, that we might bear with one another, showing forbearance, showing great patience and love towards one another. Lord, that we might conduct ourselves in a way that best glorifies you because we do believe that that is the purpose of our life. In Jesus' name, amen. As Austin has instructed before, what we're going to do is go get your kids so that the teachers can come back in here. We'll try to make this meeting very, very